With that, let me open up our scripture reading for us for this morning. We'll be reading from Mark chapter 7, uh, 1 through 13. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for the past few months, and I have the privilege of preaching the word today. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Uh, something that I always ask people to do is to leave your screens and your Bibles open as we'll continually uh, refer to these verses. Now let me read this for us. Uh, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles their father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, which means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Well, as I share, we've been going through, progressing through this gospel of Mark, and what we see is uh, that Jesus himself, with his arrival, we see that he ushers in the kingdom of God. Now, with Mark's gospel, we see that the kingdom of God, it is moving. It is progressing. It is advancing as fast as Jesus goes throughout the land and area of Galilee. And as he does, we see him encounter people from all over the place and with all different uh, uh, places in society. He met with the leper the demon-possessed, the social outcast. And today, we're going to see how not only does he encounter them, but he encounters us individually. And he's going to show us how his kingdom, how that kingdom of God has arrived. How? By embracing the heart of the Father. The heart of God that is revealed in his word. And when we do, we're going to see, we're going to find our identity in him. Our significance. Our sense of belonging. And so what do we mean by that? Before we dive into this passage more, what do I mean by sense of belonging? Well, it's defined by sociologists as the experience of personal involvement in a system or, or a set of relationships so that they themselves feel integral to that system or integral to those relationships. Self-belonging is the most common property uh, for everyone, for students who excel well on their campuses, for those who work at companies, a sense of self-belonging is what allows them to contribute the most as well. 
And to not have a sense of belonging where you are, uh, psychiatric nurses, they found that a common trait found in those who have schizophrenia, they often ask the question this to themselves, is there no place on earth for me? They say things like, I don't fit in anywhere. I'm not a part of anything. Or I don't think I'm important to anyone. And so all of us, because of this innate desire to know that there is a place for us, we respond to that desire in many different ways. So what do you do to feel significant? To feel like you matter? Like you matter to someone, that you're accepted, that you're valued, and you're loved. And to that, Jesus comes and presents to you his kingdom, which says, you matter to me. You belong to me. And we're going to flesh this out by looking at the Pharisees and their interactions with Jesus. Because the Pharisees, too, they desire significance, a sense of belonging. And they do it in two ways, and these are the two points for this morning. First... They tried to establish their sense of belonging by going the extra mile. They tried to go the extra mile. Secondly, they tried to establish their sense of belonging by elevating themselves above others. By going the extra mile and by elevating themselves above others. So with that, let me pray for us one more time and ask the Lord to help us as we dig into our passage. Holy Spirit, we know that when we encounter your word, it is all too easy to see it as a collection of truths and good things to know. But Lord, as your word says, it is living, it is active, it can pierce the soul, bring us to our knees. It can allow us to raise our hands in worship and to see you for who you are. So God, not my words, but your words may be ingrained in our hearts, and as a result, collect the glory you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first, we can see how the Pharisees try to establish their sense of belonging by going the extra mile. Recently, there was a PBS documentary on the lost boys of Sudan. And uh, these men, they immigrated to the United States and it was a uh, focus on the traditions uh, that they used to practice in their home country. And as I was watching one of the scenes, they were gathered around this kitchen table, and this is in the United States, and they were eating with their hands. And as the camera zoomed in on them, one of them explained as he smiled, this will make us look more African, make us look more Dinka. Uh, Dinka is the name of the uh, ethnic group from southern Sudan. And he says, because as you know, a person without culture is like a human being without land. So it is good to keep our tradition. And that goes to show when a person or a people group, they're in a place of transition or a situation where they feel displaced, that there is a stronger intentionality to maintain tradition, to maintain your culture with your fellow kinsmen. And because through that, you establish, what, a sense of belonging. You belong there, a sense of identity. You maintain old traditions, but also you create new ones while you feel displaced. And this was a great series, but, you know, as I was watching it, the first thing came to my mind was, man, that looks delicious as I was looking at the food. But I also immediately thought 
of my favorite food as well. Let me explain how my favorite food got created. During the Korean War, uh, food was very scarce, and many South Koreans were starving. And one of the things that the American forces did to advance was they actually went very quickly as they advanced north into the northern region. After they landed on the southern part of the peninsula, they quickly occupied city after city, town after town, so quickly that the American armies didn't have time to pack up all of their belongings. And so what happened was they left back behind a lot of food. And so what happened after that? The starving Koreans came to their bases and to these camps, and they rummaged through all the food rations, and guess what was left behind? Canned Spam, beans, macaroni, and, and the like. And the South Koreans, not knowing what to do with it, they did what they could do best. They made kimchi stew, and they took all of these things and put it in something that was already good as it is and made it even better because they added preservatives and sodium and carbs and processed meat. I mean, you can't help not but be good, right? You're bound to succeed. Now, aside from the practical need of having their food uh, desires met, what happened? Uh, these Koreans, they were in a situation with sociologists called liminality. It's a fancy word of being like I've been describing in a displaced situation, a time of transition, a time where your home is lost. And when you lose these tangible things, like your land and like your home, the intangible things bring you together and give you a sense of identity and belonging, such as language and music, and your culture becomes that much stronger. And in your displaced situation, you create new ones, and we see, we see that throughout all of history from Jewish ghettos to jazz and rap music, even to Korean army stew. Now, I'm sharing this because this is what's happening with the Israelites in our passage. They were in a state of liminality. Ever since King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel, were, they went into a downward spiral because after those two kings, all the other kings afterward failed failed to live in righteousness and holiness. And therefore, God gave the nation of Israel up to its surrounding nations. So there was never a time when Israel wasn't ruled by another nation. There wasn't a time when Israel didn't exist as a vassal nation. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire with Alexander the Great. And by the time we get to the Gospel of Mark, they're a puppet state under the Roman Empire. So over these hundreds of years, the Jews were constantly being displaced out of their homes, being exiled, moving around, resettling back to their own land, but not where they originally lived. And remember how important the promised land was in the Old Testament? The promise made to Abraham and Moses, they had built so much of their identity as a nation based upon that land. And now to have that taken away, consider the Israelites. They prized the temple. The temple which was the physical structure that represented God's dwelling amongst their land. In the Holy of Holies, in that tabernacle temple, literally God dwelt amongst them. And the temple's destroyed. And so the two most tangible things that the Israelites had that gave them a sense of belonging, a sense of identity of who they were, the chosen people of God, taken away. And for hundreds of years, what do they do? They tried to establish their identity. 
their significance, their sense of belonging, because they didn't have these things to bank on, and they were in a place of displacement, in danger of losing their sense of belonging, their belonging with God. And so the questions in their mind are these. How do I know that God still loves me? How do I know that God loves our nation, especially when there is no land and no temple? Is God still with us? Are we still his chosen people? And these are natural questions to ask. You can't fault the Israelites from asking that question. But here's where the problem lies. And the way they try to respond to that question, and that is, they try to establish, reestablish their identity and their sense of belonging with God through their religiosity. And that's where the problem lies. Because like those people in wars and like those people who lost their homes, like the Koreans in the Korean War or the Sudanese in their immigration to the States, they strengthen old traditions and create new ones that reinforce their identity and for the case for the Israelites, their spiritual identity. See, but the Israelites, they didn't create new kinds of food or music. What did they do? They held to a strict observance of God's laws. Remember, you strengthen your old cultural ties and traditions. They strengthened that, but they also created new ones. They added new laws on top of God's laws. Remember, you create new ones. And this is where they went wrong. And the Israelites, they created classes of people based on their spirituality. We see Pharisees and Sadducees come into the scene. Have you ever considered in the Old Testament, we never see Pharisees. We don't see Sadducees because they didn't exist They were created. When did they start coming about? It was during these war-torn years. We start to see synagogues. We don't see synagogues in the Old Testament. Why? Because without a temple, they needed a way to establish their tradition of teaching. And out of these synagogues, now synagogues themselves aren't bad, but the problem is out of these synagogues, they came with a set of oral tradition and teaching called the Mishnah that elevated these human traditions on parallel with God's word in addition to the Bible, man-made interpretations, having these strict requirements upon the people. And as an example, in the Mishnah, there's there's a chapter entitled Yadayim, which literally means hands. And in that chapter, there is line after line detailing when a Jew must wash their hands. All of these instructions on how to go about washing your hands up to the wrist. Water must be pouring and flowing. It can't be still water. Certain parts of the fingers must be washed in different ways and so on. Now the focus here on this passage is not on the washing of hands. It's not about being sanitary. It's a good thing to wash your hands before meals. But we're trying to understand why. Why the Pharisees and the Jews challenged Jesus by saying, Jesus, your disciples just came back from the marketplace. And the marketplace was the place where Gentiles gathered and they trade and you touched all of these unclean foods. And so they asked, why don't they wash their hands according to our tradition, to our oral tradition, to our man-made tradition? And this is one of the many examples of the Jewish people trying to establish their identity and their sense of belonging to God based on what they think is religious. And their intent was originally good because in the Old Testament, God did command the Israelites to wash their hands, but it was for the priests. 
It was for the priests before they entered into the temple and uh, performed sacrifices. That was the command. But you know what was going in the minds of these Jews, of these Pharisees? They're saying, okay, we need something more. We need something more to establish who we are. If God tells us, he told us to have the priests wash their hands before they go into the temple. You know, let's take a step further. Let's go the extra mile and say, you know what? Not just the priests, but everyone must wash their hands before they eat. And you know what? If God told the priests to do it before they entered the temple, you know what? Let's do it for everyone at all times, every single time before you eat a meal. And on top of that, not only hands, let's make it a requirement that you have to wash even the vessels, the bowls, and the plates, and even the dining couch where you lay to eat. Let's say that you have to wash those too. Because the Romans and the Gentiles, they don't live the way that we do. We're the chosen people of God. And you can see that by what we do, God will surely grant us favor because we're doing these extra acts of religiosity by going the extra mile. Do you see the thought process here? And you have to pause for a moment. This is how they lived for hundreds of years. This kind of scrupulous, scrupulous religious living having a new tradition, a new system of how things worked. This had been established for a long time. And now fast forward to Jesus. What do we see? What have we seen in the Gospel of Mark? In the first chapters, Jesus touches lepers. He embraces unclean Gentiles, hanging out in Gentile territories, hanging out with pigs, casting out the demon-possessed, being touched by a woman with a bleeding problem, touching dead bodies, interacting with tax collectors and sinners. And all this flies right in the face of the Pharisees' tradition, the tradition of trying to establish who they are, who they belong to, by their zealous religious acts. Why? By going the extra mile. Now, what does this have to do with us? You see, there are many times in my life when disruptions come my way. Things get taken away. My sense of normalcy becomes disrupted. Busyness takes over. And the very things that can make me feel settled can be taken away, just like that. One day, you think you're the healthiest person alive, and all it takes is a doctor's appointment to hear some devastating news. You think that the people you love the most will always be with you only to find out that nothing in this life is guaranteed. The security of your bank account or your job, the security of love that you seek and the commitment from certain people that you think you'll always have with you, even your closest ones, your parents, your spouse, your children. And when all that's taken away, what do we do? How do we respond to, the, to God in those situations where we may question and doubt God's love for us? Well, one thing you can do is you can dismiss him altogether and give up on this Christianity thing. It happens a lot. Another thing that many of us do is that we try to tighten our grip on God. To God, we point him to all the things that we've done for him. Or we try to go the extra mile in being a better mom or a better son or, or a better pastor, thinking, you know what, this will reaffirm God's love for me. 
He has to pay attention to me going that extra mile to make my life better, right, God? God, you told me to raise my children according to your ways. I'm going to go the extra mile. You told me to serve your church. I'm going to attend every RCF meeting throughout this semester and every community group. I'm going to volunteer for everything. You know what? I'm going to even do the PowerPoint slides, God. I'm going to give financially. I'm going to read scripture more. You see, all of these things, that's not too different from the Pharisees who say things like, God, you commanded the priests to wash their hands before entering the temple. I'm going to wash my hands every time. I'm going to make other people wash their hands. See how I go the extra mile. See, Jesus, he's not challenging the earnestness of the Pharisees. No one's denying their original intent, trying to honor God. And no one is saying that developing traditions in itself is a bad thing. But brothers and sisters, God's not denying your earnestness either. How earnest you can be to try to please him and try to make your life better and your intent and your extra mile. When that becomes the basis of establishing who you are, and the basis of God's love for you and how stable your life can be, somewhere along the way, brothers and sisters, we lost our way and lost what it means to belong to God. God never chose the Israelites because of their ability to go the extra mile. He never picked Abraham because of how religious he could be. Deuteronomy 7 says, I, the Lord your God, I have chosen you to be my people, to be my prized possession. I did not set my affection on you and choose you because you are greater or more numerous than the other nations. You are the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you, he brought you out of Egypt. God didn't choose to love you because of the kind of person you could be. He didn't send his son to die for you because he knew that he would get something in return. He chose you because he loved you and he loved you because he loves you. He sent his son to die for you because he loves you. No extra mile needed. How else are the Pharisees trying to establish their sense of belonging? Saw that in the extra mile that they're trying to go to earn his favor. We also see that they do it by trying to elevate themselves above others. We see in our passage, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites for elevating man-made commandments above God. Now, Jesus could have listed many examples of how they do that. He says so at the end of verse 13. He says, the many kinds of things that you do like this. But he gives one example regarding the fifth commandment, which is to honor one's father and mother. Verse 11 says, But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, which is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Now, what does all this mean? Now, remember how I said over the years, the Jews developed an oral tradition that added things on top of God's law. Well, this practice went to such an extreme that in cases like this, they actually created laws and traditions that went against what God originally wanted. You see, it was deeply embedded in God's commands 
all throughout Scripture for, for children to care for their parents, especially as they aged. There's also a practice you see in the book of Leviticus where you set aside your belongings and you dedicate that to the temple and to the priests. And that's what we call Corbin. When you consecrate something and say, this is reserved for the temple. Now we see these two things. And here's what the Jews and the Pharisees did. Say that an Israelite originally sets aside some material possessions for his or her parents. But then all of a sudden they say, you know what? I want to give this to the temple. And if, I, if they make that declaration, if they declare Corbin, they no longer have to give that to their parents. They are free to use that however they want as long as it's dedicated to the temple. And they created this tradition called Corbin. Now you can see why Jesus is angry. Because they create an oral tradition that siphons material possessions away from what God intended to be good and honorable to fund their salaries and to fund their buildings. Now again, this passage isn't primarily about honoring one's parents, nor is it about corruption and injustice of, of all that, so we can spend another day on that. But remember, this is just another example of how the whole system of tradition, the, the tradition that the Jews de developed, it goes way above what God originally commanded. To why? To establish their place. And for the Pharisees to establish their place in society. What did they do? They created things that elevate their importance above others. See, in this example, the temple finances are more important than one's parents. And Corbin is far more spiritual than you caring for your family. What are they doing? They're creating a system of importance and value that puts themselves on top and others on the bottom. Do you see what they're doing? And why did they do that? It goes back to what we talked about earlier, trying to find their place in society, their significance and value, a sense of belonging. And while it is a desire that all of us have, it gets ugly when we try to establish that at the expense of others. I know at first glance, all this stuff may seem so far removed from us. You know, we're talking about Jewish tradition and Pharisaic oral commands, and at the very least, Perhaps none of you can say, you know, that you funneled money away from your parents, from the elderly into your pockets. But you see, when you see the heart of the Pharisees' issues, then finding their value, their identity, and their significance in comparison to others, when they elevate themselves above others, brothers and sisters, it's not so far removed from us one bit. And I remember when I used to... Um, get an exam back in high school. I didn't do well in high school. I got a C plus. And the first thing that I would say to my parents is, everyone else got a C minus. What am I doing there? I'm elevating myself. It doesn't matter what the grade is as long as I did better than others. And this kind of mentality of establishing our significance on the basis where you are compared to other people. It pervades all areas of our lives. You know, when I see someone else struggling and whatever it may be, you know, I'll go as far as feel bad for them. I'll pray for them. Perhaps I'll even offer a hand of assistance, but the dark, sinful side of me goes, I am glad that I'm not in that person's shoes. You know when this really shocked me? You know, when I used to work in Korea, you know, I had to take one of the early morning trains from one part of the city to the other. 
and especially in the winter uh, in the train, you want to make sure you grab a seat because from the seat, glorious heat comes out and warms your entire soul. It's so nice. And you want to make sure you get that seat. Now, after a few stops, more and more people crowd onto the train and all these people are standing. And eventually, you might be, you might consider giving up your seat for someone who might need it more than you. Now, here's a secret that a lot of people do. You act like you're sleeping. Because if you do that, you can't see the elderly woman in front of you who's waiting to see who would give up their seat for her. And that's what I used to do. I was so tired, I was so cold, just act like I'm sleeping and no one will know. But here's what shocked me. There was a time on the way home. I saw an elderly woman standing clearly beside a younger person, and I saw that younger person stare at that elderly woman and did not give up their seat for her. I saw that. You know what I did? I said, excuse me, you can take my seat. And I gave up my seat for that elderly lady. Do you see how messed up I am? (laughs) I didn't give up my seat before when it was just me, but when it was in response to someone else's selfishness, in comparison to that horrible young person who ignored that elderly woman, I was glad to give up my seat because in comparison, my kind gesture elevated me above that person. It comes in all kinds of ways in our lives. And this doesn't apply to only those who elevate themselves above others. It also applies to those who devalue themselves compared to others. Why? It's the same thing. You're still operating on the system of values and traditions in our society and in this world that determines what's good and who's good and who's not. And it shows up in the kind of thinking that goes, you know, I'm nothing like that person when it comes to blank. You fill in the blank. And then we see that person, we see those people, and we try to see where we are in the mix. Placing people within our church, at work, at school, based on their finances, on how well they parent their jobs, how well put together they are. And from that, we see where we are in the mix. And I believe Jesus' words are fitting to us. You hypocrites, in vain do you worship me. Your heart is far from me. And I want to end by thinking about how the Pharisees got to this point. And I tried to show us that the Pharisees are trying to establish their sense of identity and belonging by going the extra mile, by elevating themselves above others. Now, how did they end up like this? And Jesus tells us in verse 6, he recites a prophecy from Isaiah 29, 13. You look at it, it says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. The Pharisees, they were earnest in their intentions, and they read the scriptures. They knew and memorized the Torah. But yet, they completely miss out on what God is actually saying. Their knowledge of what the Bible said was exceedingly great, but their embracing of God's heart in his Bible was so far off. Let me say that again. Their knowledge of what the Bible said was great, but the embracing of God's heart in his word was far off. 
And this happens when you start to read God's word as, it is a book, as, as, as if it's a book of truth rather than God personally communicating to you. It happens when you read scripture under the lens of your judgment where you decide what you like and what you don't like and therefore you elevate certain portions of scripture and dismiss other parts because you're uncomfortable with what it says. You know, one pastor once said, unless you have a God who can contradict you, then you can't engage him. Meaning, you know you're dealing with the real God when he contradicts you and you disagree with him. Why? Because consider this. There are going to be times in your life when you feel like a failure. And the Bible's going to come and say, through the grace of God, in spite of all of your failures, no matter what you've done, you can be my child. It's going to contradict you. And there will be other times when there are things in the Bible that you don't agree with and it goes against every fiber of what you were taught in the world around you and it will contradict you. This pastor continues and says, if the Bible can't contradict you and if you can't submit to the authority of God's word, even the difficult parts, how do you think the Bible can come and give you hope when you're hopeless? How can it argue into absolute contentment and joy in God? It can't unless you accept a God who may, who will contradict what you think. And you can't have a personal, intimate relationship with God unless you are willing to submit to him and to adjust your life around him out of love, out of a desire to know him to hear his word more than simply truth and good teaching. And so brothers and sisters, once you submit, once you start seeing this scripture, not as a collection of traditions, not as a collection of good teaching, but the very words of the living God of the universe who knows every inch of your body, every aspect of your soul, every quirk of your personality, then at the end of it, you're going to find a relentless God who is committed to you. You're going to find a God who says who you are, your place in this world, your sense of belonging, your identity, your significance, it ultimately lies in what I say you are, a child of God, chosen by me before the foundation of the world to be created holy and blameless in my sight. And in love, predestined to be my child. Not according to to the extra mile you can provide, not based on who you are compared to that person, but based off of my free will to love you. And your sense of belonging with God, your identity, does not compete with how he made you, meaning your ethnicity, your personality, the way you think, who God says you are, it doesn't compete with that as if they're on different levels of hierarchy, but what God's identity does, it undergirds of everything and every part of who you are. Where God's identity interweaves and seeps out, intersects with all of your other ones so that you are firmly grounded in what he says about you. Earlier I showed you that in verse 6, Jesus quotes <clears throat> from Isaiah. But in that Isaiah passage, do you know what it says? 
He talks about how God's lamenting at how our hearts are far from him and that we're more driven by the commandments of man rather than his heart. But right after that verse in that Isaiah passage, actually, if you're able, uh, go to Isaiah 29, 14. If possible, I recommend let this verse be with you throughout this week. Isaiah 29, 14. Refer to it. Let it guide you this week. It says this. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. Think about that. Right after Jesus rebukes his people, saying, you are hypocrites, you are far from me, you don't care about my heart at all, what's his immediate response and reaction to that is, I'm going to win you over again. I'm going to have to persuade you again. I'm going to amaze you again with wonder upon wonder because I am committed to you in response to your hypocrisy, in response to how you're trying to establish who you are apart from me. I'm going to persuade you and win you over. I'm going to come to earth to show you directly what that means. He's going to take every instance of guilt and shame that you've experienced in this life and he's going to take it upon himself. He's going to embrace that as his identity on that cross as if it was his own. He's going to take every instance of you giving lip service to God when your heart was far from him. And we're going to know that Jesus is going to make that forgiven. Why? Because his heart was never far off from God's heart. So close to God's heart. When Jesus was on on the cross, he could have easily poured down wrath upon all those wicked men. But he knew God's heart so well, the heart of redemption, that only when he died on that cross that we can have our place secure in him. And the good news is that we can celebrate our place in God wherever we are. In and every situation where you feel displaced and confused and forgotten and as if you don't have a place where you do belong, you can turn to God who says you are in Christ. That never changes and that never will. And this is something that I'm learning to appreciate time and time again. Growing up, I moved from place to place, constantly finding myself in different groups of friends. One of the nicknames that my friends used to call me was Shady because I always was never around and always hanging out with different groups of people. And I found, and I'm continually finding, that no matter where I go, no matter who I'm with, things may change. My mannerisms, my way of thinking, my friends. But God has never changed. And I will always belong to him. And that identity will never change. Some of you today might feel like you're a wanderer, like you never belong and you never got into this Christianity thing, and you're not sold, and that's okay. And it's okay if you don't do a 180-degree turn after today, but walk away knowing this. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God's going to be there. And the moment you do face him, the first words out of his mouth is going to be, you're mine. After looking in God's word, let's take a couple minutes and I invite you to just personally pray to God 
respond to how he may be speaking to you this morning. And I'll close this in prayer.